HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We have a whole hour dedicated to today's guest, Bartholomew Jones, who is the founder of Coffee Black and also a musical artist who just put out an album under the same name this year. We have a really incredible conversation about the history of coffee, uh, how it is tied to black culture, how it originally came from Africa, how it was stolen and uh, the business of coffee, and also about his creativity, his pursuits in life. And it's just a really in-depth, amazing, really special conversation. We're so excited that he gave us so much time and sat down with us. Uh, Thank you so much to Kat Johnson for putting us in touch. We really appreciate it. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. Morning, and I know I'm still alive. 
up in the morning with my hands up, thank My coffee, black and bold. I'm ready to go, yeah. My coffee, black and white. It's too much sugar and too much cream All the distractions, all of the world's gleams Yeah, I see the glory before the seraphim And they tell the story, all the mores will never wanna be Yeah, I got a father, he put hope in me But they wanna see me with clutch rope in me Now I bear the grind, I got ropes in me 365, never plagiarized the ghost in me Jump my coffee Black and bold I'm ready to go Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. We are so excited to be sitting down with Bartholomew Jones, whose song opened up the the show, Coffee Black, which is also the name of his business. Uh, Bartholomew, welcome to Snacky Tunes. What's up, man? Thanks for having me, yo. Of course. So first, most important question, have you had your coffee this morning? What did you drink? Uh, right now, I'm drinking um, uh, Ethiopian coffee from the Sadamo region, specifically like the Wush Wush portion of the Sadamo region. So we're, mm. we're, sam- we're doing some sample roasts uh, right now, picking a new coffee for the year. So uh, we got like seven, seven coffees to sample. So I'm just drinking this. I, had, I did it on Kalita Wave this morning. Um, tried it on AeroPress yesterday. It's kind of good. It's got like the strawberry rhubarb vibe, and um, then kind of like a um, like a like a mint chocolate chip ice cream after finish or mm. after taste. So I'm digging it. I'm digging it. It might be too too kind of weird for our customer base. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, I'm it's, excited it's, about it's, it. I personally like it. Yeah, I mean, especially someone who knows coffee so well. Um, there's the stuff that you like and then the stuff that's probably going to sell to people who just never think of coffee more than just coffee. Yeah. And our customer base is kind of like the mix of those two groups. And so I try to pick coffees that I think people could drink every day. That's interesting on different, um, different methods, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, I'm super excited because I got two bags of your coffee, Guji Mane on my way to my house Let's right go. now. Let's I know. go. I am. I mean, so I was watching your piece um, on the black history of coffee and uh, I saw you pouring it up and I was like, Oh, that looks like really good coffee. 
<laughs> it is, man. It is. So, um, yeah. And, you know, look, I, I really loved the piece you did because I'll be honest, I did not know much about the history of coffee. My own personal experience was growing up in the suburbs of Philly, thinking that coffee came out of a Seattle coffee shop in the 90s. Just magically appeared, but you, you know, you give the history of it, which is a really, I would say, uh, rough and violent history of coffee, um, with it being stolen from Africa. And I'd love for you just to share a little bit of the history of coffee so that people understand, I guess, what we're really going to talk about over the next hour or so. Yeah, so coffee was discovered um, in, I guess, what's currently known as Ethiopia. That region of the world is known by many names, Kush, Abyssinia, um, you know, different different names. But uh, basically, uh, it was discovered there by a gentleman, as the story goes, a gentleman named Kaldi, who was a goat herder. Uh, he was from the Oromo ethnic group in Ethiopia, which is currently um, an oppressed people group in Ethiopia and other parts of Eastern Africa. Um, but at the time he was just a goat herder, you know, he was, he was from his tribe. He well, not, they're not actually a tribe, they're an ethnic group. And so, yeah, his goats stumbled upon these red cherries, the red cherries, uh, energized the goats, the goats were jumping all over the place. And so that made him curious. Um, and after that point, you know, the, the bean gets introduced into a uh, larger Ethiopian, um, culture and it begins to be a part of their daily rituals. So it becomes at this point, they're not boiling it or anything like that. Um, mm. it's mostly being crushed. And I, I don't know if you ever had like an energy ball, like peanut butter, oatmeal, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. raisins, they would make a similar thing using, uh, crushed coffee cherries, uh, with the coffee seeds inside. Um, because coffee is a seed, not necessarily a bean. Um, right. and so, yeah. And then they would use ghee, which is kind of like a, a distilled butter, um, mm-hmm. And so they would mix those two things up um, and occasionally put other items in there. And then they would use that as like a stimulant when they were going to war, as a celebratory thing, when they were going to hunt or when there was like a community event. You know, over time, it becomes something that uh, people begin to brew into a liquid substance. And there are other parts of the world that are participating in this. So, you know, that region, you have Ethiopia, uh, which currently, I mean, at this point, you have Eritrea, Ethiopia and Djibouti. Um, and then you also had Yemen across the Red Sea. Um, and once you get into Yemen, you're really, really, I mean, you're, are you in Africa? Are you in the Middle East? You know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a closer conference. It's Northern Africa. So there's a lot of uh, intermixing there. And so then the, 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 the fruit can get passed to other parts of the world. So you have this actually really multicultural mix of people all enjoying this thing that was discovered by these black people in Ethiopia from the Oromo ethnic group. And um, in 1616, the Dutch um, sent two spies to the port of Mocha in Yemen to steal uh, coffee seeds. They end up successfully stealing those coffee seeds and then cultivating a colonized uh, colonized farm in Java. And so if you've ever heard the term Java, that's because in Indonesia, the, the place Java um, was one of the first colonies where coffee was forced to be grown by a European country. Um and so this practice becomes normalized with a lot of other European countries. So at this point, when you look at where coffee grows, if it's not in Ethiopia, uh, Djibouti, Yemen, maybe Kenya, um, or or uh, I think I hit them all, Eritrea uh, or Sudan, Sudan, then it's probably there because some country colonized the indigenous people groups there and forced them to grow coffee. 
Um, so yeah, like uh, Brazil, um, Honduras, uh, Indonesia, uh, you know, all these places, coffee has been transplanted through colonization. And so kind of that's that's the basic history behind it. The reason why the Dutch wanted to steal it, you might ask yourself, well, why would they steal it? Why wouldn't they just come and, you know, you can go to Lowe's mm-hmm. right now and get a seed for whatever you want. So why don't they just go buy coffee seeds? It's because the countries that were growing it in Africa uh, were holding on to the financial power of that seed. And so they would sell you right. um, infertile seeds or beans if you wanted to roast them yourself. Let's say you had a cafe, you know, you're in, um, I don't know, Italy, and you have a cafe and you want to sell coffee. Well, you can... Um, it's possible for you to purchase, you know, 400 pounds, 500 pounds, however many you want of infertile seeds, roast them at your cafe, sell them, but they wouldn't sell you the seeds to grow. One, because you need a certain elevation to grow coffee anyway. And so if um, the coffee plant starts getting grown everywhere, the fruit is not going to be of the same quality. And then two, because again, like that's a, that's, that's a large amount of wealth that you would be giving up a monopoly on. So as a country, countries are dependent on ex- dependent upon export. So why would you, if you have a, a, a huge export that's a part of your economy, why would you just give someone <laughs> the, the foundation right. plans for them to cripple your economy? Um, but yeah, so, so Dutch people came and stole it. Um, and unfortunately, that pattern is seen as many other countries get the seed either from the Dutch or from other places and then use it as a means to colonize the rest of the world, pretty much. And using that wealth and using that power and taking that wealth and power away from African countries, it becomes a pattern, but also coffee becomes a cash crop. Yeah, coffee is the largest, um, after oil, coffee is the largest industry on the planet. So it's a $100 billion export, right? Um, right. And so ironically, one of our, um, one of my, one of my, um, I guess, educators, one of the people who spent time, I've, I've just studied what she's done. It's a Congolese woman in Canada who owns a, uh, coffee and a Mikate spot. It's called coffee and Mikate. So it's basically like coffee and beignets and she sells Congolese coffee, but she has this project. I think it's called the coffee project. And she did some infographics about essentially how, um, coffee is a hundred billion dollar industry, which is also the same amount of money right now that's budgeted for the foreign aid or the foreign relief uh, budget worldwide. And a lot of these countries that are impoverished, it's just crazy how it's so similar, but these countries that are impoverished are mostly poor because of the colonialistic practices that have disrupted mm. their economy. And so now there's a, there's a, there's a foreign aid budget that is the same value of the crop that was stolen from these countries or forced upon these countries. And so um, her whole thing is, man, that's not sustainable. It's kind of de, uh, dehumanizing to constantly be receiving uh, foreign aid for forever. Um, you know, in America, we have the conversation about um, welfare, but there's a, there's a, a global welfare state and people are forced to um, participate in this and not given the tools that were taken from them that they need to be able to sustain themselves. And so she was mm-hmm. like, man, if we were actually allow more people to engage in their own, um, their own industries and start owning the things that get exported from their countries at ridiculously cheap prices, then we actually might see um, more empowerment and a reduction in the global, global, um, the global welfare state. And so I think that 
those things are powerful, especially when you consider the opportunities, right? The, the families who could start businesses and the children yeah. who could become, you know, internationally educated. Uh, when it comes, coffee is an international good. And so there's so many opportunities to travel, to meet other people, to better yourself um, in this industry. Like um, it's normal for people in what is called third wave coffee uh, to take origin trips, you know what I mean? And to go to a place where the coffee is grown. But imagine if you had black and brown people at origin taking trips to visit other countries that are similar to theirs. And they're discussing the economic state of their country and they're able to create ideas on how to improve their businesses. And you have poor people in the ghettos of America taking these trips and figuring out how to create businesses with other people who are dealing with similar situations globally, um, all of this is done without asking for a bit of aid. <laughs> you know, all of this could be done without yeah. asking for a, a drop of a donation or anything. They're actually selling something that the whole world wants, you know? Um, so I, it's a powerful opportunity and we're just inspired by it. I mean, talking about business and inspiration, uh, I'd love to hear more about the story behind your own coffee business, Coffee Black. Um, you know, what made you want to start it? And you know, being in Memphis, which is not what um, the first city that comes to mind when you think of a coffee town, but how does it represent Memphis? Right, right. And you know, what made you want to get uh, into coffee? Well, I think for me, it just comes down to imagination. So when I was in um, when I was in college, I went to Wheaton College, which is like a small liberal arts college outside of Chicago. And um, I grew up in Memphis my whole life, you know, never went to coffee shops outside of like Starbucks in high school to get Frappuccinos. My dad sure. was a big coffee drinker and he 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 loves Ethiopia, not Ethiopia, he loves Kenyan coffee. And so he had like tried to introduce me to that when I was younger. I have no idea how my dad got into Kenyan, uh, to Kenyan coffee. You know, it's either two things. One, he took a trip to Kenya when he was in college. So either he got introduced there. Uh, sure. or it was one of our church members. He always tried to get me to drink it. I was never into it. Um, you know, the closest I might come to it is a caramel, fra- uh, caramel like mac- macchiato. Um, but anyway, I-, I go to college. I'm introduced to a lot of coffee. Co- Chicago's a big coffee town, Intelligentsia, Dark Matter. Um, so I was kind of introduced to coffee there. And then um, as I was going to these coffee shops, uh, I was an elementary education major. So I was going there to either work on lesson plans or I'm also a rapper, a musician and a, like a mm-hmm. like a sort of an activist. And so I'll, I'll either be there like organizing with people or writing raps or uh, working on schoolwork, lesson plans and stuff. I just noticed there weren't a lot of black people there. And it was never like a negative experience. I always like to say this because I think there's kind of like this. Uh, sometimes people want to hear this like black trauma porn where it's like, what happened? Was it terrible? You know, it was like nothing, nothing terrible happened. Nobody jumped me. Like the, the clan members didn't show up at the coffee shop yeah. or anything like that. You know, it was just like, um, I just thought it was weird. And so it was a question in the back of my mind. But meanwhile, I'm falling in love with coffee, right? I'm starting to enjoy it more. I moved back to Memphis. My wife is, um, I mean, my wife, we get married our first Christmas. She buys me an espresso machine. Now I'm really fascinated. I'm kind of a nerd at heart. That's an important thing to know about me is like, I've always been into like, little nerdy stuff like comic books or mm. anime or like anything that like is kind of niche, I would just gravitate towards it. And so when I found 
um coffee it was obviously niche and so i was just got really into like all the little details of it and finding out all the information i could and kicking it at coffee shops i probably spent like four or five thousand dollars after that first christmas just buying equipment and that was a big deal because when you grow up poor i would say we probably go up lower middle class um you just don't spend money on things that aren't necessities and so spending um money on coffee when you could just buy, you know, instant coffee at the store was something that was super strange. So my wife was the first one to kind of show me, wow, it, you can actually spend money on this. She kind of like gave me permission. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't do anything about without my wife's permission. <laughs> so like, after she did, I was like, wow, okay, cool. I spent all this. Right. Look, you, you're foolish if you do. Um, so like, yeah, I did all this stuff. With coffee and just started meeting everybody in the local scene, asking questions and just being there all the time. Um, and as I started to do this, you know, I'm still noticing hmm, there's not many other black people here or there are no black people here. And again, no negative experiences, just a question like, why aren't there more black people at coffee shops? And that question led to several other questions, which eventually led me to I think the question that started us to push us to start coffee black, which is like, what would happen if there was a black coffee brand? Like, what would that look like? Mm. Uh, what would it sound like? What would it feel like? Would people respond to it? Would there be mostly white support? Would black people come out and feel like this is something that's for them? And so we were in the studio um, earlier last year and I was working on a series of like improvisational um, hip hop songs. Uh, one of which I sent to you, so I'm, I'm excited for you to hear that. But yeah. I was working on this series of improv- live improvisation songs, and um, my DJ at the time, who was kind of curating the experience at his studio, had used to work for A Ball and MJG, who were big Memphis rap artists. And um, you know, he was also strangely into coffee a lot, and so we would go to like the, the like the bougie coffee shop down the street in like the gentrified neighborhood or whatever. And grab our coffee before we go to the studio. And then we brew up at the studio. We actually ended up getting like a little mini sponsorship from a local coffee shop. They would like give us coffee each week. Um, But we were just really into it. And as we were working on music, one day he was like, yo, what if we came out with a coffee and called it Gucci Mane? Um, and it was, it was hilarious because we're in the studio making rap music in the same studio that like these Southern rap legends like A-Ball and MJG have been to and smoked out and just like had this very Southern rap experience and we're making coffee here. And so those two things kind of coalesced in that moment. And we were like, okay, wow, this would be super dope. At the time I was a barista, um, in my short stint as a barista, um, and I had been a home barista for like four or five years just due to my wife's influence. And so I knew I could make really good coffee, but I didn't know how to roast coffee. Long story short, I get connected through another rapper in Chicago to a roaster who had just moved back in Memphis. His name is Kenny Baker. He has a company called Ethnos Coffee. So Kenny becomes the roaster for our company, um, as well as continuing to do things for his company. So we collaborated. And then that's how Gucci Man came to be, bro. We had 50 pounds. It was supposed to be a pop-up. Those 50 pounds sold uh, in less than 10 days to 90% young Black creatives. And so we're like, nice. wow, okay, there's, there's a demand for this. And so people kept asking us, and we kept just doing another 25 pounds and another 50 pounds until it got to a point where we're like, man, okay, we got to keep doing this. And, uh, you know, I was still teaching. You know, I was still doing all of that. Um, yeah. But we were doing concerts. We were trying to create these just imaginative black experiences in coffee. So, you know, a lot of my music looks at the parallels between the black experience and the coffee experience. 
Um, and then we were creating concerts at, at different coffee shops and we would do have these like all we have all black baristas behind the bar and uh, kind of reimagine the space. Um, and then we started doing these coffee classes where we basically it's called a brew up. It's like a coffee cipher. So you get all the coffees. We normally try to get black owned roasters, get a bunch of them, get everybody in a circle. We have a DJ playing there. My other DJ, um, DJ HD three. Great dude. He produced a lot of the music on the album, too. So he'll DJ. The community will invite the community out. People will come. They'll get to try coffee. My wife is there with her company. She's from Memphis. And so she makes do the like, T-shirts, right? She does all yeah, the, the merch. Yeah, she does everything dope about our company. I just talk to people. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, man. Like, we did that. And those were really amazing. Started having these amazing conversations about uh, coffee and gentrification and uh, globalization and you know, one of the most interesting things that came out of those talks was like, what is the difference between good coffee and cheap coffee? So a lot of times people say, um, man, if you're doing a business with poor people, you got to make sure things are affordable, which means cheap, right? Generally, it means lower quality. Generally, it means the people at origin who are producing these goods, because America doesn't produce very much, are getting paid less. And so we're actually perpetuating poverty in another country if we make it cheaper here. Unless you're cutting out the middle, man. But when you're talking about coffee, that's harder, right? So then they said, yeah. well, okay, let's present good coffee. Uh, and so then it's like, well, does good coffee have to be expensive? Is there a solution to that? We don't have the answer to that, but the community asks that question. I think it's a valuable question to ask because if we're taking crappy coffee and then just kind of giving it to the poor people, like they, that doesn't sound good when you say it out loud. Um, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's like there's got to be a solution, though, because you don't want to you don't want to create this luxury item um, and like price people out either and so you know solutions i don't know those are things that we're, we're excited to continue to dialogue about and talk about what is it like can you have a coffee shop without gentrification or can you have positive gentrification like those are all things we're excited about and, and you know we're making streetwear and trying to create new clothes that are coffee themed for the culture and um yeah. like it just became a really cool experience and um i was still working at teaching my, we had started this wonderful art school in the neighborhood my dad grew up. I was basically a rap teacher. So my job was literally just to find kids and do arts integration with them and fight, figure out how they can use the arts they're passionate about in their classes. And uh, that school closed due to lack of funding, as most things do, uh, which is one awesome. of the reasons why I wanted to get into get away from nonprofit work. I was just really frustrated. I've been so frustrated. Even before we were at this school, we seeing good things, good opportunities, you know, good students, good teachers, good principals who uh, are forced into uh, either continuing oppression that's been done to them or at the very least not doing a good thing they could do because they don't have the funds or because, quote unquote, oh, you know, they won't let us do that. And uh, mm -hmm. whether they is a school board or they is whoever's providing the national grants or there's always someone who's in the way who can't give the money. Who, and I just always found that strange, especially working at schools where I was, where it was mostly all black people. And still we found that felt like we couldn't do what we needed to do for black students and black communities. And so I think a big part of that is because we didn't we didn't have control over our financial structure. And so um, business has kind of turned. I've never been a businessman. I've just stumbled into it. But. Business has become this place where I felt way more freedom to do whatever, you know, whatever I want, whatever I can imagine, any idea God gives me. If I can figure out a way to make it profitable, we can do it, you know. And um, even if I can't make it profitable, I can consider it a charitable donation <laughs> and do it anyway. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, and so this has been just this grand experiment for us. It's been really fun. Um, I can show my old students how to make money. You know, my dream is we just purchased this lot, uh, this empty lot next to us in the hood. We're trying to buy back the block. And we imagine building a new home for ourselves with an Airbnb on the side and space mm. in the back for us to put, have a coffee roastery, barista training space and things where we can train kids in the neighborhood. And to be able to kind of have like a starter school where we just take kids in high school through how to start their own online brand. You know, we can walk them through how to do it through coffee, through apparel, through creating podcasts, through recording your own music. Like the, the opportunities are endless. And, you know, we're a debt free company, so we don't operate on credit. We operate on operate on revenue. And all my rich friends tell me I'm stupid, but I ain't never been rich, man. So, you know, I'm like, yeah. they're like, you should use other people's money. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm doing what I think seems right to us and it's worked so far. And there may be a day where we start using more credit, but it's been fun. Again, like for me, everything is about imagination. Um, I had a college professor who told me I studied sociology in college and he was like, or in undergrad anyway, not graduate school. I just studied education in grad school. In undergrad, he was like, man, I really want you as a Korean guy named Dr. Kim. And he was a big, he had a big emphasis on the Christian imagination and the sociological imagination and how those two things could be used to create a better, a better world. And I think those things have really influenced my art and then subsequently my business that came out of my art, um, which is just imagination and thinking about when I read my, the scriptures of my faith, I look at, you know, the, a description of how the world should be and then start mm-hmm. imagining, you know, ways for us to get there. And I don't know if it works. It's coming from my imagination, but it's been really cool to see some of those things actually become materialized and see the Lord breathe life into, you know, things like a black, coffee brand <laughs> which yeah. didn't exist uh, at the time but it started with just wondering if it could and what it would look like you know yeah well listen we're gonna take a quick musical break we're gonna play energy uh by you um and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk oh. about uh the business of it and um black coffee culture and just uh we're gonna eventually also get to the music that you're making in the album you put out oh yeah we just dropped a song today actually Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, then we'll call that a Snacky Tunes uh, exclusive. Here we go. First up, we got Energy Bartholomew Jones here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. The other day I saw a man. He told me to take a loan out. I said, what it look like? Nah, Yo. Yo, we got the energy to generate a situation, save a nation, make a people wanna hit the slide, slide. Make me wanna turn and half electric, pop your sucker side. I'ma have to let you know we ride, ride. Anybody wanna take me off my square, gon' have to come and put some hands on your boy. Yeah, if you wanna see me come around with the dupa dupa sound, you gon' see me with all of my boys, boys. Yeah, we ride deep up in the clutch for real, and we bringin' the type of energy that you gon' feel. I got the avatar stands, plus the Goku hands. I wish you would come yeah, and take my yeah, plans. Yeah, nah, nah, I got, got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate. Ain't no man, we got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generating 
kinda like a pergolator Got me feeling super saiyan in this situation You know what I'm saying, you know that I'm praying You know that this savior coming to save us all from the situation They praying like mantis, they want me to stand this I cannot, I'd rather be with my clan This is a situation where I might have to go Conan on them You know they wanna get my one man off of this This is the new tribalism, anybody's welcome Which refusion of the mission from Yeshua Vision Special being canon to any on Steve Bannon That's an otherworldly power to plow through they wicked planet uh, We bring the rich to the poor, I bring you good news or more When you growing up with the soul isn't the limit of course I grow it like my maker, I got the queen like Sheba We making new Jamaica, bringing blue mountain flavors Like the stuff in your cup, so what's up? Yeah, just cut you a rug, cause you know we Snack of Tunes. We have Bartholomew Jones here, Coffee Black. And I want to get back to some of the things that you you touched on briefly um, in the, our first part of our conversation, which is, you know, being okay with having a business, making profit, um, but then also really creating and, and adding into um, Black coffee culture. And you're seeing a yep. lot more uh, Black coffee um focus shops that have been opening up around the country in a let's be honest a business that was predominantly run you know by white people um for mm-hmm. the majority part of like coffee's popularity and i'd love for you to talk right. to us about the difference of like a black coffee shop or a, something that is focused around um the culture um and how that is represented because i've always felt that Coffee shops are probably one of the most, especially the independent ones, the most personal examples of someone's personality turned into a business. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and we can touch on the, 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 it's, it, as an outsider, it's easy to kind of see some of the, you know, my cousin Brandis Daniels is uh, doing amazing things in the fashion industry through her company, Harlem yeah. Fashion Row. And she recently gave a TED talk about, how um there's a power in being an outsider and she actually came and spoke to my students about this too mm. we had studied her ted talk and wrote some papers for her back when i was teaching at orange mound and i think now that i'm in the coffee industry as an outsider i see the power in that just because i'm able to notice things and kind of see trends that other people it's just in the water for sure. everybody else so um i like to i like to say well, i will start with this so I think a lot of coffee shops, like you said, for the people who are creating them are these very personal experiences. But for someone who's outside of it, they all look the same. 
<laughs> like in third wave coffee right. shops, they all pretty much look the same. And I think I had a conversation with some friends a while back about just how there's it's a is your marketing toward a certain demographic when you start a third wave shop. Period. And the reason why I say that is because when you when you look at minimalism, Edison lights, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, sta- yep. standing bars, uh, uh, really uncomfortable seats. Um, like these are, <laughs> these are uh, uh, not accepting cash. Like when we look at these trends, these are uh, visco filters. Like these are not things that are created in a vacuum, right? They didn't just come ex nihilo, right? This someone created an idea sure. and an aesthetic that was uh, marketable to a certain demographic of people. And so, black coffee culture is really. And at least what we hope is is that it's is something that a lot of times, even when people don't try to do it intentionally, I feel like it's is really just trying to just be coffee culture. And when I say coffee culture, I mean mm. coffee in and of itself is a black thing, right? And so right. coffee has been colonized from the from from its original indigenous origin and then kind of turned into a consumeristic experience. Um, and so most black people, without even trying it, that I've met in the industry. Are, tr- are just naturally doing what Black people were doing with coffee before it was colonized, which is using it as a part of their community. And I don't think that's something, mm. nat- something that's indig- indigenous to, or I think only indigenous to Black people. I think uh, a lot of the dopest coffee people I know, period, you know, the words coffee and community both start with the letter C, and I don't think that's the only reason why you see them come up a lot when people talk about coffee, right? Like right. Um, like people, people in general see there's a connectivity that's actually scientific, right? When you look at the fact that coffee is a stimulant, people generally consume stimulants in groups, right? They don't consume stimulants in isolation. So whether you're talking about cocaine, whether you're talking about alcohol, whether you're talking about, you know, anything you want, an aphrodisiac, people consume these things in groups because they create human connectivity, right? And so when your brain and the dopamine senses in your brain are triggered, that sense that 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 uh, experience is heightened when you're in close proximity to other human beings and into society. And so, like historically, when you look at the Aromo culture, which is the the people group who discovered coffee, coffee was a way of connecting with creation. So it was seen as a way to connect with your neighbor, a way to connect with your family, a way to connect with nature, a way to connect with the divine. It was seen as a very connective uh, substance. And so. Um, even when you look at the history of coffee as it moves to places like Paris and things like that, coffee becomes even a romantic connective experience where mm. coffee begins to be seen in places where people are falling in love or building relationships. Coffee has always had this natural human connective aspect. And again, I think that's due to the fact that it's a stimulant. And so most most, uh, most black people in, in the businesses that I've seen um, like people with the the coffee enthusiast or the chocolate barista or Lanisa at South uh, South Central Cafe, I believe it's the name of her. But she's um, the oh man, I can't remember her name. But yeah, Lanisa, she's also in Sprudge Twenty. Um, a lot of other really dope friends who are all in the coffee industry um, are seeing coffee as a way to bring their community together. Even a guy, Keijan Franklin, who's here in Memphis, he's starting a, a, a coffee truck. Um, he's seeking to create safe spaces for black people to connect. So co- black coffee culture, and I know this because I've done the research, but I, I see this period just, I think it's one of those natural 
ontological things that people just do because it's a part of their DNA or a part of their makeup. People, black people are trying to see, see coffee as a part of the black experience, period. And so it's not, there's not this, um, this kind of remixing of what's happening in general coffee by black people is more so of a, a leaving the remix that currently is third wave coffee and returning to some of the original tunes that were played by the greats in coffee history, mm. specifically I looking at like, the Oromo culture, when we look at coffee in Ethiopian families, when we look at coffee in Eritrean families and Yemeni families, like coffee is something that's served almost three times a day, uh, much like the British people would think about tea. And it's something that is just prepared um, oftentimes by the women of the house. So we can take a moment, a moment and shout out Black women because in shout Ethiopia, out. Yemen, um, they're doing the work of four to five coffee professionals. <laughs> they're sourcing coffee roasting coffee they're a barista and they're an expert in the process of figuring out how to sustainably do a whole situation like that and so like there um there's like four or five different people's jobs in third wave coffee but you have black women doing this daily right and in, in, in where it was created because again one of the things you have to recognize about western culture is western culture is uh, a lot of ways uh pays a lot of its debt to the enlightenment and so when we look at the enlightenment a big part of it was elevating the reason of humanity specifically white humanity over and above that of the rest of creation and so classification becomes a big thing even when we look at darwin when he begins to classify human humans right based on what he perceives to be their jaw structure driving by Madagascar is like, Oh, those black people must be lower elevated from lower forms of light or uh, evolved from lower forms of light. And a lot of times classification can be very damaging when it's done in a, in a bubble, right? When you're classifying things without doing that in community with people, mm -hmm. it can be very othering to, to people. And so we see that in coffee, coffee's turned into this really classified, mechanized, scientific experience, which, I mean, I'm going to be honest, that's part of what I like about it. It's part of what what excites the nerd in me. I always introduce oh, yeah. myself as a coffee nerd. But we have to realize that is only valuable to a certain extent, and it cannot represent the fullness of coffee because that's not what it was originally, right? And so it would be dehumanizing for me to take your original intent as a human um, and turn you into something that uh, is not what you are, me to refer to you by a different name or pronoun or whatever that you don't prefer, right? That would be a very harmful experience for you. So same with coffee. Coffee has originated. It has an original purpose. So when we take it and refer to it in a means that it was not created to be or not, not generated as originally, it can be very harmful. And a lot of times we don't know why, right? We're not sure, but we can see that the culture that is in coffee oftentimes is very discriminatory, right? And, and we see that right yeah. now with La Marzocco, uh, with Counterculture, and a lot of these other big brands, Barista Hustle, that are being outed because of, in my opinion, something that is embedded in the DNA of the very approach to the good in the first place, right? Which is built on this colonialistic, empirical, imperial um, uh, elevation of white reason over and above that of the human family in general. And so black coffee culture is seeking to reconnect coffee to the people group who discovered it, which is black people and integrate it into the daily things that we've been doing anyway. And so like coffee now is being imagined as a part of the hip hop experience as a part of Black education, as a part of the Black religious experience, as a part of community organizing, as a part of family life, as a part of potlucks and barbecues and 
all of these things, coffee is being presented not as this special thing, again, that we're kind of remixing, but more so as something that we're reclaiming and reintroducing back. It's like, a, you know, you lose you lose a family, you realize you have a lost long, a, a long lost sister, you know, and yeah. you're like, okay, we found her. Let's bring her back into the, that's how black people feel about coffee in general right now. Oh, there you are, coffee. Come on back <laughs> over, you know, to the barbecue. Come back to the cookout. Right. We got you. And so that's kind of where, and of course, coffee has had, you know, this mirror, one of, one of, one of people, one of the people who inspired me is propaganda. He gave this uh, spoken word that was called, if coffee was a man um, and, or if coffee was a woman, he said, he said, if coffee was a man, he'd be a black man. If coffee was a woman, she'd be a black woman. And he talks about how she's traveled and how she's been all around the world and how he has experienced uh, being burned at the hands of colonizers and all these wonderful, beautiful, poetic things. And like, once you come back from those experiences, of course, you can never uh, take that away from what coffee is today. So we're not seeking to erase uh, even the harmful past of coffee, but saying, OK, now that coffee has become what it is, let's reintroduce it. Let's imagine what it would look like to reintroduce it back to where it came from, which is from black people. Um, and you talk, so, yeah. you talk about that and the, the wealth associated with that. And you, um, you know, I know that you you wrote a piece on coffee reparations and also yeah. you've said that coffee can be the key to creating generational wealth across the mm -hmm. diaspora and so beyond yeah. just reclaiming it culturally there is a financial uh reclaiming um because you know we talked about earlier that it's a hundred billion dollar international business and that coffee can yeah. become something that stabilizes wealth for this generation and future generations um yeah what what is the importance of, of getting that money to stabilize generational wealth um, for the people who have experienced the diaspora? Yeah, I think one thing that we have to recognize is that, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, I'm a man of faith. I believe in Yahweh and, and his son, Yeshua. And so from my family's perspective, all creation has value. Every human being and everything that a human being touches has inherent value. So when we look at culture right culture is a product that human beings cultivate correct so then that culture then has value that is divine because it's transferred from the human beings who receive their divine value because they're made in the image of god and so anything we touch right then is an image reflection of us right you even mentioned how coffee shops reflect um or image mm -hmm. the people who are yeah. creating these businesses so right culture has value and that could just be merely a theological, philosophical conversation. But when we look at Black culture in particular, we see there is actually a monetary value to the cultural goods that we create. For instance, um, mm -hmm. one of the, again, one person who really inspires me here in Memphis is a guy named I Make Mad Beats. He referenced a study that said that the most popular music and most profitable music in the world right now is trap music, which was created by Black people. Specifically, it was created from a type of music called crunk music, which was created in yep. Memphis, Tennessee. By people like Abar, MJG, Project Pat, Yo Gotti, Three Six Mafia, all these type of people, right? So now that this is a business, right? We see rappers getting, you know, ten million dollar deals, fifty million dollar deals uh, off of trap music, which at one point was just a cultural good. There was no money associated with it; it was an art form. But someone was able to see, and because of the way capitalism works, you're, all you're doing is exchanging value for money, right? So you're saying, hey, this has a certain amount of inherent value. We can mm -hmm. uh, calculate that to be worth this many dollars, and you pay for the value that someone's giving you. You know, Gary Vee always talks about adding value. So 
when we let's let's re- we run that back to coffee now, we've already established that culture has a has a dollar value, right? What happens when that culture then is appropriated or stolen is that people are losing wealth that they created when their culture is appropriated and then sold off to the highest bidder. People are actually losing property, right? People are lo- right. losing um, right. losing inheritances, and so when the credit is given or even when credit is given to the people who create it and they're not financially compensated for their contributions. Like, can you imagine starting a fortune 500 company? Oh, actually, I guess we can. We've all seen the Facebook movie, but can you imagine starting a (laughs) fortune 500 company and then that company becomes super successful and somehow you're never recognized or compensated for your contributions on the ground level? Like, yeah, we can all recognize with the Facebook movie, Wow, that's terrible. That sucks. Mark Zuckerberg is a terrible person, right? We can all yes, kind of recognize is. that. Uh, or we've seen the McDonald's, the, the movie about the creation of McDonald's, and we can recognize these yeah. things. That's exactly what happened to black people. When you look at mm-hmm. hip hop, when you look at coffee, when you look at, I don't know, let's pick a thing. When you look at uh, the African American vernacular being used on TikTok right now, which is also a huge business. Right. When you when things are appropriated from a people and then they're not given credit and then they're not compensated, they lose value. But then their children lose value. And I, I learned something as we purchased this property across uh, right across from us. Right. In the state of Tennessee, if you have property and you have children, when you lose your property in a tax sale, your children have the right to come back after they turn 18 my attorney was telling me this, right? He said, your children have the right when you turn 18 to come back and claim that property regardless of who bought it, what's been built on it, they own that property and what's been done to it. And um, and your children can simply say, hey, we weren't weren't made aware of this. This is our inheritance. We claim it. And my attorney doesn't follow Yahweh. He's not a follower of Yeshua. But I said, brother, you preaching right now. Uh, (laughs) So he was telling me, you have to be careful when you purchase something sold in the tax sale because at any point, the children of the people who owned it might pop up and redeem that property, and then you will lose everything you built on that. That is what we are seeing happening in coffee right now, right? Mm. (laughs) We're seeing people who have built something that's been sold on a tax sale, and the children of the people who owned it originally are coming back and saying, hey, this is ours. Right. And thankfully, those people are being nice. They're not saying we want to kick you off the property, but they are saying we want to begin to be a part of the business. Come on, man. We want to we want to begin a part of the business and we want to be a part of the decision making that goes with something that is a part of our inheritance. And so that right there is what's happening with coffee. We're seeing it happen with hip hop as more people begin to be independent artists. We're seeing it happen with fashion through, again, what my cousin Brandis Daniel is doing in Harlem Fashion Road. These things are happening uh, globally. And uh, we're seeing the consequences of when these things don't happen, when we see all these black men, black women, black trans men, black trans women being killed, black people, period, being killed on TV and on our on our social media feeds. Right. We're seeing people who are generally vulnerable and don't have access. One thing I notice is a lot of these people are being killed on property that they don't own. Right. They're being killed because they're trying to do business mm. with someone else, either on the in their store or walking on public property or jogging in what they believe to be their neighborhood with their neighbors. And they're finding that there's violence being happened to them. And these things happen even on Juneteenth today, which is also the yeah. day that Trump wanted to uh, have his rally uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I mean, where there was a black Wall Street that was destroyed. And, and so, like, we see that there is a need 
for black generational wealth, not because black people are greedy, not because black people are mean and want to take things. Because again, my the proposal no. I make through coffee doesn't require taking anything from anybody. You know, even though I do think reparations is something that can be argued for, uh, but that's a whole separate conversation. But even if we, we're not even having that conversation, we're just saying let's let, let black let black families build businesses, and if you like their yeah. products, buy their stuff. That's it. You know, no, no, we're not talking about reparations. We're not talking about communism. We're, we're talking about plain old, good old American capitalism. You know. And, you know, with $100 billion to go around, that should be enough uh, for everyone. Um, look, should. I want to take... And, the, and, yeah, and I know. That's in the, in the market can grow, right? It's not even like that's the cap. No, it's not. Uh, look, I want to take a quick musical break because I want to come back. and I want to talk uh, about the music and the album you put out this year. Um, we have up next, which is, I think, my favorite track off the album, Black Like Me. I've had the, the opening hey. hook in my... It's been stuck in my head since I don't know last week, two weeks now. Which I since, since I started okay. watching uh, your okay. video, uh, but I love it and it's yeah. great and uh, it's a uh, it's it's a great piece and it talks a lot about really. I think it really fuses the coffee culture and everything we've been talking about into your music. But uh, here we go, Bartholomew Jones, Black Like Me on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network org. Stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Coffee stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Today that I'm thinking in full is so many hues I might have to get two double up on that juice berries that carry dark magic touched by vibranium the coffee come from Kim it is limitless like our cranium curls our babies ain't no baby Jesus gave me my favorite nose cup in my covers beauties they got a lot with the ghost I got a lot of their heart I got a lot for the cocoa butter the cover so I thank them for those uh-huh pumping the hemoglobin they told me we black like evil so I had to stack they devils on devils I come with Evels and levels, I shut they stevels to make sure that they never come back with that. And then I tell them to get that cup of that black and cheap. Coffee black. stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Coffee stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Got 
that made us black, uh, black like the aroma, uh, black like seed on popo, uh, black like the aromas on them nights we used to pull up, uh, I like seed Iomo, uh, my spirit speak many tongues, my people take many blows, but we be like many suns, shining even when they yawn, ironing even when they lying, when they mining, all our cobalt and our coffee like our melanin, but we be flying like a rocket, when the spirit come inside, he tell us unlock all our lockets, we just shine like Coco Hughes, tasting got many hues, coffee stay with the blues, but I come back and choose to be what I'm made to be, and they can never take the makers gleam up off me, uh. Coffee stay black, just like me, don't need no sugar, don't need no cream, coffee stay black, just like me. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are sitting down with Bartholomew Jones, and we've talked a lot about uh, the coffee and coffee black uh, business and the amazing coffee uh, history that you've been sharing with us. Um, but you're also an artist, uh, a musical artist, and it's very rare that we have someone on the show who is proficient in both business and also music. You usually find someone who's like, oh, I, you know, I play guitar on the side or, or I, I rap on the side or I sing on the side or you find someone who's a musical artist who's like, yeah, I, ha- I like I work at like a burrito shop or sometimes I'm a waiter. But you've really created this unique world and this vision that marries uh, really good coffee and really good music. Um, How did I know that you mentioned that you had had taught a rap class uh, at the at the art school a while back. But what made you want to put Mm -hmm. out a whole album? What got you involved with music? Uh, You know, how did you find your voice? Yeah, man, I've been rapping with the homies since I was like 12. You know, my mom okay. and dad would get out of church. Me and my friends would be kicking it, waiting on our parents, which if you've ever been to a black church, it takes forever for our parents to actually <laughs> leave church. So church will get out and they'll say, hey, go get in the car. It's time to go. And then you'll be waiting like an hour or two. And so one of my friends ended up like becoming a DJ because he we would need, we'd be listening to music and then somebody would start freestyling. And then we were like, oh, we need a part, rewind the part of the song. So he would end up like dubbing tapes with like little beats mm-hmm. or, or portions of songs that uh, didn't have any rapping on it. And so we would do that every Sunday. You know, um, all of the songs that I showed you or particularly the live song that I sent you, is they're all improvised, right? So... Um, that's what right. we did. The reason why I can improvise songs or freestyle, um, it's just because I did that every Sunday my whole life. <laughs> um, right. And so practice. it's kind of normal. Um, yeah, practice, I guess. Yeah, practice. So, and I've had a lot of really good, I love jazz. Yeah, man. And I love jazz. And so like, I've heard my brother is actually a, a like a classically trained, um, 
musician. And so at the conservatory that he learned from, you know, I used to go to when he had jazz. I wasn't really there for the the classical musicians, but whenever some when he had a jazz teacher come from Chicago or something, I would try to like scoot in and um yeah, I had a guy say only play 10% of what you hear. Uh, he was a drummer and he was talking about improvising as a jazz musician. And I think I applied that to songwriting and also to freestyling. And I think it, it really helped. So like I was into music. I was in college and in college, I started realizing I suffered from depression. And so, um, you know, mm. I would one of my one of my friends, Dirty, you know, um, that's what he went by is a white guy from somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> and he was uh, our roommate. None of us had or well, none of us had like Max, but he did. So he would let us like once he went to sleep, he was like, I'll just leave my door open. You guys can come borrow my Mac. So every night to kind of deal with my depression, I would go and grab his computer and I would go from like 11 o'clock till 430 or 415 with some of my friends. Mm. And we would just write songs and record ourselves, not really for the purpose of ever putting them out. But just to for me, it was just a part of processing my pain. Eventually, like I, my friends stopped showing up and it was just me, you know, and so I, right. I just kept doing it. Um, I was in gospel choir in college. Um, that's kind of where I fell in love with gospel music, with like the black tradition of spiritual music and soul music. And um, I had a mentor who was a drummer and I asked him, which if you've ever asked somebody to be your mentor, it's kind of an awkward thing because it's like asking a girl out on a date. Like you kind of <laughs> admire this person. You know what I mean? You're yeah, terrified please. they're going to say no. <laughs> yeah. Please share your brain, like, hey. your life experience. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything to give you. I just want to learn from you. So I yeah. was like, hey, would you mentor me? And um, he and the guitarist in the band, who's now his brother-in-law, uh, Steve Dukes and Thomas Egler were their names. So uh, they they actually had produced for Twista before. So they were music producers mm. and they had worked with a lot of different artists. So to me, that's like, oh, wow, these guys are really in the industry. And again, I'm in college studying music, uh, excuse me, elementary education and sociology. So I'm like, but I'm fascinated by music. I love music. I grew up doing it. So they ended up um, allowing me to come and record some songs with them. And, um, you know, Tom was my mentor. So we ended up kicking in and I worked. He has a production company, like a, a media production company. And I traded a summer's worth of work to record an album. That album never Amazing. came out, but we did drop it. Yeah, we, we did drop an EP from it called No New Negatives. And that was my first project I released. And then we recorded another album together. That album didn't come out either. Um, but one of the songs from that album that ended up making it to the current album is Coffee Black, right? Um, so that song ended up coming from that project. And uh, so I, I had already recorded two albums, both of which didn't come out because I didn't have enough money to finish getting a mix or I didn't have money for the trumpet players I wanted because I was, I was fascinated with, you know, this black spiritual music. And so I yeah. loved all the live instrumentation, even though I grew up in the South listening to Three Six Mafia. So I was like really, fa again, imagination, like what would, ha what would these two things you know, I had this concept for an album, which which was like if hip hop was rich, like hip hop was created in poverty um, because there was no they removed the music programs from the schools in New York and in the Bronx. And so um, kids who were musically inclined were forced to innovate and use samplers and, and and become disc jockeys. And you had this whole culture that was birthed out of not having things. I was like, yo, what did those kids? did have instruments like what would hip-hop sound like you know what did those kids had access to so like again this imagination was a big thing for me so i was like then i started fusing like okay what would it sound like if this was in the south and like so this fascination with music was a big part of me i had recorded two albums the albums didn't come out and so i eventually realized i had to learn how to produce myself and so i started learning more production um and so all the songs on this series called on the spot 
of one of which I sent you, I produced myself. And so I was really feeling like, okay, I awesome. I can put these joints out. I found some collaborators. Um, you know, the mix isn't the best or the most amazing, but it feels oh, real. Stop, it feels stop, raw, it feels stop. Memphis, it feels like the blues. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was yeah. like, really, I, I, was, I felt like I was making progress. And um, I had also gotten connected with an indie label out in California called King's Dream. And I wasn't on the label, but they had a Patreon where they would re- review your music and also give you like music advice. And so Ruslan, the guy's name is Ruslan, who's on there. And I really liked the artists who were on there. And so I started collaborating with them. And I actually met my new engineer through that, through that program um, and started getting a lot of music advice and um, he was actually one of the guys I called Ruslan was, uh, the guy who owns that label. Um, when I lost my job, my teaching job, and he was one of the people to tell me like, bro, this is your opportunity. You feel like God is telling you to go full in on this vision. He's giving you like, take that chance. You're only going to get one, you know? And so, um, yeah, he actually taught me, showed me how to make shirts and a bunch of stuff. So, um, I was just like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And I met, uh, HD who produced a lot of the music on the album with me. Um, we would go over and produce stuff. And then I basically was able to just like take things I had been working on and had been able to finish as the business made more money and started giving me a little bit of extra capital for me to invest in getting things mixed or paying for album art, stuff I couldn't pay for before. Cause I was really just asking people to do things for free. And so mm-hmm. a big part of my musical journey was actually like, I had talent, but the actual infrastructure it takes to do music a lot of times oh, yeah. at this point was funded by my coffee company. Um, um, and it's funny because the music basically is a commercial for our company. You know what I mean? Like oh, it's yeah. a commercial for everything we believe in. So all of our music videos and stuff, like I try to approach it as if I'm a separate brand and I'm trying to reach out to a musical artist and I say, Hey, we want to do that. product placement with you guys. So yeah, man, that was the whole journey. So like I said, I grew up listening to a lot of like earth, wind and fire. My pops was a trumpet player in high school at Overton college was the perform. I mean, Overton high school, which is a performing arts high school here in the city. And like my mom listened to gospel music growing up. And, um, my dad was a big jazz fan too. So I grew up listening to like gospel music, jazz. Um, and then in the context where you have the blues and, and trap music, or I guess crunk music at the time playing in the background, you have stacks music playing in the background. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff kind of influenced me, man. And I was just, I did the skill I had was I could rap and eventually I learned how to produce. And so I could kind of bring those two skills of like sampling and rapping and songwriting into the mix um, and collaborate with a lot of the people who are in my context and some people who are, you know, like out in Cali and stuff like that in Chicago and was able to finally finish a project. So I knew I wanted to drop the album. Um, and for me, like everything is connected. So I was like, the, I'm not doing a company just to make money. I really don't. I, we really didn't make money for a long time. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm doing this because I'm passionate about it. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a better way to do what I was doing as a teacher. It's a better way for me to control what my students learn, what information I present. I don't have to check any boxes. I don't have to do any, like jump through any hoops. I can control it and I can teach my students how to build their own programs and their own situations, their own businesses. And so the music was a big part of like all of the things I did as a teacher. Like every school I was at, I had, I started a hip hop club. You know, I would take my students to perform in different places around the city. We recorded a couple songs together. We would always freestyle and cipher together. We talk about life, our community, you know, and I'm not a big fan of like when rappers try to police um, the community, like, Hey, you people stop doing mm. that crime. Like I'm, I'm not a big, that's kind of whack to me. Um, <laughs> but I am a big fan yeah. of what's called, uh, and again, this is the nerd in me. 
it's called the uh the uh cogenerative dialogue which was coined by a guy named paulo friere when he worked with indigenous um farmers in south america but it's basically oh he was teaching them how to read but instead of saying here's my chalkboard i'm teaching you he would create conversations the community would generate questions and through that they would dialogue with their reality they would say well i wonder why this is like it is in our community and so for him he would then do his lesson plans around those questions but for me i would say that's what we're going to write songs about right like i'm not going to tell you the right or the wrong answer we're just going to explore the world around us through music and hopefully we create a better world through that process and that's what i did with my company is like again it was a say a way like what if this happened or why is this this way and the album was the same way you know it was like me trying to explore different musical combinations, me trying to explore themes and questions that came. Because through the process of starting our company, like my wife and I have had yeah. three miscarriages. And so mm. like, it makes it really difficult to care about posting on Instagram. Yeah, man, I appreciate that, man. We're, 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 we're healing from that process, but like, it was hard, you know, um, my wife had to leave her job. So then I had to work by my, I, I was working alone. Not yeah. alone, but I was the only income coming into the house. And as a teacher, you just don't make that much money. You know, I've had no. students lose their lives. And my, we've oh. had kids in our neighborhood get shot that we're building relationships with. And so, like, all these things, like, you know, my grandparents passed through this whole process. So there's been a lot of loss. And as I'm building this business, as I'm trying to create this music and this art, you know, we just want to positively influence the world to become, to reach the destiny we believe God has for it. And so, like, art was one of the biggest ways for me. Again, like, it's always been a form of mental health for me. Like, whenever I'm depressed mm. or, like, even, you know, when we had the third. Yeah, when I had that third miscarriage, like, my when my wife let me know what happened, like, we, I had to go to the studio. So, I, you know, I didn't go that day. But, um, you know, yeah. my wife knew, like, okay, he needs to go create. So one of the songs on the album called Shade is uh, mm-hmm. it's just me you know, going through that process. But there's a lot of moments on the song, man, where I was like, those songs got me through the most difficult parts of this journey we're on. And so like, you know, even in Africa, like one of the most interesting things I've learned is I've talked to uh, my brother Ibrahim, who's from the Oromo ethnic group. Um, He has a company called Oromo Coffee Beans, and he's taught me a lot, um, is how coffee has always been connected to music and art, you know? Um, Mm. Indigenously, coffee... Is, is is grown by these farmers and then it comes to these co- cooperative meals, right? Where they sort the coffee, these sorting meals, sorting stations, they sing songs of praise. Ethiopia is one of the oldest uh, Christian nations on the planet, actually. And so like you'll have people singing praises to their creator in their indigenous language while they're sorting coffee. There's ceramics, um, like this thing called the uh, jabina which is how they brew coffee. It's a beautifully created ceramic piece. Um, almost kind of looks like a, like a vase with a really tiny neck. Um, and that's how they grow the coffee. That's how they, excuse me, brew the coffee. Right. So there's like art there. Then there's these things called theme jaws, which I just got from my brother, uh, Jonathan, who's Eritrean down in Dallas. And, um, this is what they drink the coffee. Like there's all this beautiful art, there's music. They, they burn frankincense as they, as they make the coffee, which is actually one of the, um, one of the spices that was given to Yeshua when he was born. Uh, if you know with if you're familiar with like the nativity story. Um, mm-hmm. And so like all these, all these different, these artistic pieces are connected to humanity and spirituality um, indigenously. And so as I am a person of faith moving through this and trying to understand my artistic expression, like I'm seeing coffee be a part of my creative process too. And I'm just seeing something really beautiful in that process. Like, I don't think there's a way for me to do coffee and just be like, 
hmm, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell some coffee and put my tie on. I'm gonna create a marketing scheme. Like, no, it's like, it's it's, it's this creative, and, and I hope, and what I think is it's going to be black, right? It's going to be creative, yeah. it's going to be artistic, it's going to be musical. These things have always been tied together. Even when we look at slaves, music was a part of their liberation. It always has right. been. When you look at Negro spirituals and field hollers, like these spiritual songs are also connected with paths to reach liberation. And so that's just like, you know, even the song you just play, Energy, for me is like, I'm literally explaining to my students in my head, on how to start a business. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Like, you yeah. don't need these people's money. You don't need anybody else to tell you what you can and can't do. Like, we have the energy ourselves yes. to create a new situation for ourselves without anybody's help. Not because it's not right for them to help help us, because, sadly, I just don't think the help will come. Mm. Well, listen, Bartholomew, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your story and your art and your creativity with us. Um, we're going to, uh, do the child of God on the spot live to end the show, but I want to make sure that people can order the coffee, order the merch, follow along with you. So where can they find you online? Yeah, man, they can find us at coffeeblack.com, but put an X where the O goes. So X like not from X. Um, and yeah, they can get our coffee. They can get our apparel. Um, they can get our music there. Um, all of it, man. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, and I cannot wait for this coffee to show up. I, I I know that it's shipped, so I'll let you know when I get it. I'll brew some up, send some photos. Hey, uh, okay. That's awesome. Well, listen, Bartholomew, Coffee Black, thank you so much. We got Child of God on the spot live. Thank you so much for listening here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If anybody asks me, y'all, I'm saying who I am, who I am. Tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. If anybody asks me, y'all, I'm saying who I am, who I am. Tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Yeah. They ask me who I am like they don't know. They don't know. I take them on a ride like a rodeo. A rodeo. I live my life so clear, man, that's for sure. That's for sure. Just know that I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. The, Holy the world drives me insane. I don't live for the fame. I'm trying to live in the plane. Yeah, that's for Come sure. On, I live for the king. Staying true to the game, though it's hard to maintain. Yeah, I call that growth. These are my bars, I go home and come hard The vibe's strong with the squad The life seems odd, this is not a facade This is who we are, give praise to y'all Cause I'm a child of God If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am Who I am Tell them I'm a child of God Tell them I'm a child of God If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am Who I am Tell them I'm a child of God Tell them I'm a child of God. Uh, they want to know who I'm supposed to be. They want to know what it's supposed to be when they see a black man in the streets with two sons on his side. I tell them that I'm alive. I tell them I'm a child of God. Uh, I got my hand on the mic in one way. They tell me to stop. I can't because I pray. Uh, I got that everlasting kind of bunny, fantastic, elastic, child of God action. If anybody asks me who I am, who I am, yo, I tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Yeah. If anybody asks me, y'all, saying who I am, who I am. Uh, Tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them you ain't 
my daddy. My daddy. Yeah. Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Uh, you ain't my daddy. My daddy. Uh, trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Yeah, you ain't my daddy. My daddy. Who are you? Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Uh, you ain't my daddy. My daddy. Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. If anybody asks you who I am, sing it. Say who I am. Who I am. If anybody asks you who I am, tell them I'm a child. Tell them I'm a child. Tell them I'm a child. Tell them. Tell him I'm a child, y'all. Yeah. Tell him I'm a child. Tell him I'm a child. Tell him I'm a child. Yeah. Say, I'm a child of God. Yeah, that's right. Woo! Yeah, okay. Take 11. This is officially the end of On the Spot. Season 1. And we want to celebrate with you all the weekend of June 30th. We are having a concert, uh, a celebration. A, I don't know, man. This is going to be a vibe. So y'all got to come through. Um, details to be determined. I want you all to check it out. Link in my bio. It's going to be dope. Shout out to the whole squad who came through. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we got Daniel. He's been holding down the vocals for a minute. Okay. We got Greg came through with all the arrangement. My wife came through with all the fineness, you know what I mean, and all the dopeness <laughs> and, and just the general dopeness. Also, shout out to M3, dopest engineer in the game. If you pull up and say, yo, man, we got a choir, <laughs> a gospel ensemble, M3 is a dude who can make it happen. Uh, also, shout out to Ethnos Coffee for the sponsorship. And also, shout out to Reverb Coffee. They also had a sponsorship with us this season. Super dope. Season 2 starting soon, but we are officially in album mode, y'all. Concert mode. It's going to be real, bro. We doing some stuff. It's going to be dope. Drink your coffee, Black. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.